Kathy and I were in uh, California recently, I mentioned a week ago, and one of the delights we had was simply to hang out with our daughters and their families, and that of course means the grandkids too, and sitting in the Tinker household, one of their favorite games, they pull out the building blocks and Annalise builds the towers or the walls. We were reading the book, The Selfish Giants, and so she had a big tall wall on the big table in front of us, and you know, if you remember as kids and and with our own kids, we did this too. You know, the favorite thing when dad came home from work was to build the tall tower. And then, you know, the other fun thing to do once you've built the tall tower is to knock it down. However, it's important that the person that built it gets to knock it down, right? So if somebody else knocks the wall or the tower down, that's not so cool. Some tears may flow and some frustration may rise. Uh, Rudyard Kipling's one of my favorite British uh, authors. Uh, he wrote a lot. He's a sharp guy. He wrote a poem, probably his most famous. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I wanted to read part of one stanza here. He said this, and, and the, the nuance of the poem was, what does it look like to be a genuine man? What does manly manliness look like? That's the poem if, and this is part of one stanza, says it this way, he wrote, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop, and build them up with worn out tools. The whole poem goes line by line about if you can do this, if you can respond to life this way at the end, you'll be a real man. You'll be the genuine article. And one of the things he mentions here is if you can watch the towers you've built or the walls you've constructed, the investments you've made of your life, if you can watch those things knocked down by the hands of others and turn around and get up and rebuild again. That was one of his marks of a manly man. A genuine man. And that's where we're going to be going this morning. How do you and I respond when life or people reverse the gains we've given our lives to see? When you see reversals in your sphere of influence, the things you gave your life to, when you see them broken, what do you do with that? How do we respond to that? Out of our character, out of our understanding about who God is and what He requires of us, what does that look like for us? And I would argue at some significant level, Kipling had it right, that this ability, this resiliency to turn around and rebuild what has been broken is one of the marks of a mature Christian, of someone who knows Christ and God's call on their life. We're going to be in Nehemiah again this morning. Um, one of the greatest revivals in the history of Israel as a nation occurred under Nehemiah's watch. And when we think of the book of Nehemiah, if we're familiar with it at all, it's almost always Nehemiah built the wall. Well, the truth is, that's only into the first six chapters. Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. What did the rest of his ministry look like? It had nothing to do with the wall. It had to do with rebuilding the nation from the inside out. It had to do with their spiritual nature and character. And one of the greatest revivals in Israel's history took place under Nehemiah. And yet, as you'll see in a little bit, Nehemiah is there. He invests for 12 years. He's the governor. 
And Nehemiah rises like a phoenix out of the ashes of the destruction of the city and the nation to this great high water mark in their history. And Nehemiah leaves. The text won't tell us how long he's gone, but he goes back to Persia. And when he returns, he sees his towers knocked down. He sees all the things he'd given his life to broken. And the lesson for us in this this morning is, how did Nehemiah face the spiritual reversal, significant and stark as it was, in his day? And then how can we make some applications out of that ourselves as well? We're in the 8th. This is the second to last message in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And the series title is Don't Quit. If you've been here or if you've missed these prior ones, we've looked at these along the way. Nehemiah has faced and overcome and his great work as governor was to rebuild the wall. But subsequent to that, he was really rebuilding the nation itself. So he's faced and overcome ridicule, conspiracies from without, abuse from within, distractions, accusations, and the temptation to disqualify himself. So today we see how Nehemiah responds to spiritual reversals, to all his key life's investment made, successful for a time, and then gone, just simply knocked down. Guys, this is a little, uh, it's a difficult message this morning, not necessarily because of the the content, but what we're going to do this morning is not what I would prefer to. We're going to skim point by point chapter 6 through 12. And I'm just going to walk us through. We don't have a real clear narrative this morning, in other words. There's not a story that I'm taking you through point by point, sort of. We're elongating this by taking a verse or a point out of each chapter, 6 through 12. And then we'll get to chapter 13 and we'll look at the specific points that Nehemiah confronts, those points of reversal. And then we'll close by making some applications. So, bear with me. This is a little harder to get through for you and for me than some of the the cleaner narratives that we've looked at in the past. So hopefully you've got a study sheet. If you've got a Bible, you can I'll quote some of the verses so you can do that. If you want to just write some notes on your study sheet, that's great too. So, marching quickly through the fields of chapter 6 through 12, uh, it says at 6.15, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. In less than two months, Nehemiah came back to the ruined walls and city of Jerusalem and miraculously completed the work of the wall itself. Verse 16 says, when our enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid, fell greatly in their own esteem because they perceived This work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The enemies themselves recognized the work was so massive and so great, and the returnees' resources and abilities were so sparse, there's no way they did that on their own. Their God must have helped them. Get to chapter 7. Nehemiah sets up the doors and the gates in the completed masonry stone walls. He sets up gatekeepers around for the security of the city. He sets up also, though, the temple singers. Again, because his work wasn't just the walls. Ultimately, as you'll see in a little bit, it was to bring about the restoration of the nation as a whole, not just the physical structure around it. So he also, let's see, is this chapter? Yeah, 7. He conducts a census. You Remember back in David's day, David had conducted a census and God judged him for it because the motive was wicked. Well, here it's not. Nehemiah takes a census because they are going to repeople the city of Jerusalem. The census is going to help towards that end. But it also makes sure that they've got an adequate priesthood 
to serve in the temple and that the ones serving in the temple are in fact the ones God says those are the priests. And one of the issues that comes up is there's a family of guys that can't prove their lineage. And so they say, well, you can't serve as priests because we're doing this God's way. Chapter 8 is one of the high points, not the key high point, but it's one of the high points of the book because in chapter 8, Ezra the priest from the book of Ezra, Ezra the priest who'd come back to Jerusalem before Nehemiah, is little Ezra here? Yes, okay. So we've got a namesake for Ezra right up here in the front row. So Ezra the priest comes into the city, they put a podium up, and Ezra reads the law. Guys, most of us as Christians are somewhat familiar at least with the Gospels. And in the Gospels, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're this group that they're picayunish, right, on the law. And it's not just the law, we keep the law, we keep all the regulations and rules we've added to the law. That is not what Israel looked like throughout its history. That is not what we read back in it. Israel never kept the law. They didn't keep the law or the covenant. The, the, the points in which they did, they're the exceptions, they're not the rule. So when they come back, they don't know what the law and the covenant are. So here in chapter 8, Ezra gets up and he reads them the law and the covenant that these are the rules, this is the understanding that God says, this is my relationship with you and yours with me. So Ezra, under Nehemiah's governor rule, Ezra's calling them back to the covenant. That this is how God interacts with us and we interact with Him. And out of that, the people celebrated the, the Feast of Booths again because it was the seventh month. So Ezra's reading the law. It could be the first five books. It might be the book of Deuteronomy. It's not entirely clear what that reference means. But they read it and the law says you're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Booths in the seventh month. And so they say, this is the seventh month. We better do that. So right away you've got this response, a spiritual response to the law. We're going to do what God has called us to. We're going to keep the covenant. Chapter 9 in Nehemiah is a lot like chapter 9 in the book of Daniel. And these two chapter 9s, they're some of the high point of prayers in the Old Testament. If you want a great model for what godly prayer looks like, you can go to Daniel 9 or Nehemiah 9. One of the things we did when we looked through the, a study of the Bible last year was we marked up our Bibles to see what does godly prayer in the Bible look like. And these are two great examples. So in Nehemiah 9, there's this great humble prayer that emphasizes God's greatness and His faithfulness on one hand and their humility and their failure on the other. And then the request for God to continue in His loving kindness towards them to help them live in covenant faithfulness with Him. It's a great prayer. It's a great example and model for us today. In chapter 10, the people have heard the covenant, the law, in chapter 8. In chapter 9, they've prayed this humble prayer of worship and confession. And in chapter 10, they renew the covenant. Now, whether they liked it or not, if you were a Jew back in the day, you were under the covenant. Just like we're under the laws of this land, whether we recognize it or not. The law will still come down on Mike if Mike chooses to break it. That was true for them as well. But having heard the covenant, that generation of returnees in Jerusalem says, we are signing on the dotted line, we are renewing the covenant. We're saying of us, our families, our generation, we are going to keep the covenant. 
We're going to be faithful to God again. He's brought us back. He's blessing us. We've heard what His requirements are. And that's us. We're signing up. We're signing on. When they did that, they were specifically committing, you'll see this in the text, to marry only within the Jewish covenant context. They're, they're promising to keep the Sabbath. Remember, these are all elements of the covenant. They committed themselves to follow the law by providing for the temple and the priesthood so that God would have first place in their midst again. Remember that for them in their day, it's very different than for us. God is not geographically locked, right? He's, he's everywhere at all times. But for the Jews, He said, I will dwell with you in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So for the Jews, to come to God meant physically to come to Jerusalem and to come to the temple. When you displayed respect for the temple, you were displaying respect for God. For the one who said, this is my house on earth. So they said, we're going to show faithfulness to God by providing for the temple and the priesthood. Chapter 11 says the people tithe. And this has nothing to do with money. This is interesting. They numbered the families in tens. And one in every ten family had to become a resident of the city of Jerusalem. Because they said as a nation, we recognize God's city is not, does not have an adequate population. We've got to re-people the city of Jerusalem on a permanent basis. So they tied their families to go live inside the city and other families volunteered to do that. It would be like our giving today. Same thing, but this was with people, with their lives. They were showing honor to God by tithing themselves to live in God's city. Chapter 12 of Nehemiah is the high watermark of the book. Because in chapter 12, everything has come together. And in chapter 12, they're celebrating the completion of the wall, the gates, but also the reinstitution of the law and the temple and worship and sacrifice. And so in chapter 12, you get there and you see that they form two lines and the, there's this choir, there's these choirs that go up on the wall around the temple and the people all gather together in the temple courts. And verse 42 says, the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The echoes of their worship were so loud that it carried outside the walls of the city. The Gentiles outside could hear them praising God. Jerusalem had not seen anything like this in almost 200 years. The last time Jerusalem, the city, had been witness to this kind of revival, and it was a revival, was under good King Josiah in the 600s B.C. They're in the middle 400s here. Jerusalem had not seen anything like this in about 200 years. This was a high water mark. Nehemiah, and think of Nehemiah. We'll see uh, again here in just a minute that it was a 12 year investment. But for Nehemiah, he's looking back on this day, and, and we would want to do the same. You know, when we've been invested for a long period of time in something we know God's called us to, there should be this pause to celebrate. And to give thanks for what God has used us to be a part of and to do, right? That's a good thing. To pause and to celebrate and to savor that. And this would have been the moment that would have happened for Nehemiah. 
Because everything's done. The walls are rebuilt. The gates are in. The land is peopled. The city is peopled. Sacrifice is going on. And they're all together around the temple, God's house, celebrating God and celebrating the state of their nation with God again. So this, was, this was great, great, grand stuff. And we would want to celebrate and savor that too. This was the last of a three-pronged return, if you will, that God had always intended and if you go back, just to put this in context, if you remember in 538 B.C., King Cyrus had sent back the first returnees to the city. Now remember, the city they returned to had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So it was a rubble heap. The walls had been torn down. The temple didn't exist. This first group went back. And Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest and the governor, they rebuilt the temple. That makes sense, doesn't it? If God's presence with us is mitigated by the presence of His house, the temple, it's the first thing they did. The first group back rebuilt the temple. Haggai and Zechariah, the Old Testament prophetic books, describe that. So that was the first return. The second return was under Ezra in 458. About 80 years later. And Ezra reminded the people that we're a covenant people and we live under the covenant in God's land of promise. So Nehemiah here came back in 445. Building the city walls was simply a way of allowing life to occur within God's city for the covenant people to live safely, faithfully in God's city. And remember, the intention was always that God's city would be a lamp on a hill, be a light to the nations and the Gentiles. So all of this has come together. Nehemiah was the last piece he was, the, he was the last block, if you will, on the tower of restoration and rebuilding Jerusalem, God's people back in the land. So we would stop and we would savor that for a moment, right? At least a moment. Ah, it's done. Here we are. The work of my life. Here's the fruitfulness. Now when you get to chapter 13, all that changes. You get to chapter 12, the fruit of his life, it's glorious. It's grand. Ain't life good. You get to chapter 13, and the blocks, like the walls of Jericho, they come tumbling down. So at chapter 13, and by the way, if you read commentaries, you'll know that there's, uh, there's challenges to the chronology of the book. We're, we're just treating it just the way Nehemiah has been laid out. But we know that, that after 12 years from chapter 13, verse 6, the things that Nehemiah, the points of failure he's going to address... They occurred in his absence. So he's there for 12 years. He leaves. He goes back to Persia. Verse 6 says, While this was taking place, the things that we'll look at here, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered. And that's what we'll look at now, what he discovered. So, 12 is the high water mark. Everything's great. Everything's grand. The restoration appears complete. Nehemiah leaves. He goes back to Persia. We're not sure how long he's gone. But he's gone long enough for people to marry and have children. And those children to grow old enough at least to have speech and language, as you'll see. So, everything's been great. And here's chapter 13. This is what Nehemiah finds. Verse 4. Chapter 13. We'll park here, so if you want to look in your Bibles, you can park right there in chapter 13. Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. This is the temple. These are the, the rooms. If you remember in the temple, there's a central section that has the holy place and the holy of holies. 
but on the sides of those, there are storage rooms where things for the priesthood, the Levites, were kept. So Eliashib, who was appointed over the chambers, those side rooms, of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah. Do you remember? In this story, Sanballat and Tobiah are the key enemies of God and God's people. And their constant effort throughout the book has to been to submarine Nehemiah's God-given task of rebuilding the city. These are God's enemies, they're God's people's enemies, and they're Nehemiah's enemies. So when he comes back, he finds that Eliashib the priest, who is related to Tobiah by marriage, he's an Ammonite, by the way, remember that means he can't come and dwell in God's covenant people as an Ammonite, as an unconverted Ammonite, that Eliashib had prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests. Do you see? Nehemiah comes back. And in God's temple is God's enemy. And it's not because the city's been overthrown. It's because the priest has cleared the rooms meant to store the things for God and God's servants in the temple to make a personal residence for God's enemy, Tobiah. Can you? I can't imagine what the moment of realization for Nehemiah must have been when he gets to the temple and he sees what has happened. God's enemy has been willingly escorted into God's temple. And the stuff that was there that was supposed to sustain the priests and the Levites, well, it's gone. That leads to the second point in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So Eliashib cares about his relative by marriage Tobiah enough to clear the stuff out of the temple storehouses to give Tobiah a nice presence there in the heart of the city. But Elisha didn't care enough to take care of the priests and the Levites. So you can imagine they're serving there, but they're sustained, they and their families are, by the gifts and offerings. So they're not taken care of anymore. They're without resources and they simply go home. They leave the city. They leave the temple. Again, can you imagine this? Chapter 12, the nation is around the walls and around the temple celebrating faithfulness. And Nehemiah comes back and God's house is empty because... Nobody was taking care of it. No one was taking care of the priests and the Levites. Verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Remember that for the Jews, this is a distinction. We're not under the law. We're not getting into all kinds of of permutations of this, but they were subject to the Sabbath law. God said, you don't work on the Sabbath. That day is uniquely devoted to Me. And they committed to that too, if you remember back in chapter 10. But here He comes back and it's just another day to make a profit. So they're just buying and selling on the Sabbath day just like they would any other day. That's what He comes back and sees. In verse 23, in those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod The Ashdod, those would be Philistines, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah. Only the language of each people. So again, he was gone long enough. There's been marriages and there's been children who've grown up and they don't speak Hebrew. 
Now understand the implication of this. This isn't just about language. If they speak their pagan mother's language, what culture do you think is informing their life? And whose gods do you think they're worshiping? They're worshiping mom's gods. They're following mom's religion. They're following mom's culture and mom's language. So again, back to chapter 10, they had covenanted with God to only marry covenant-keeping Jews. But here they are, he comes back. And this had happened earlier to them. This is a repeat of earlier sins. It's more of the same. And last, along that same line, verse 28, one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat's the other key enemy of God, God's people, and Nehemiah. So the high priest's grandson has now married into the family of Sanballat. So, Nehemiah's come back. Remember he left. Everything was great. The tower, the walls were built. My block has been erected. The fruit of my life, it's looking good. But he comes back and all the work is gone and the tower has been knocked down. And it looks like all the fruit of his life is gone. That's what he comes back to. Now, talking about his response, uh, it can be a dangerous thing to talk about what Scripture does not say, right? God's written His Word, so we want to say, what has God said? But sometimes it's significant what is not included in a story. And when you look at Nehemiah's recorded response, there's not one word of depression, discouragement, crying in my tea, woe is me. That simply does not exist in his response. The record of Nehemiah's response includes nothing like that. Now guys, I think for you and I, I'll speak for myself at least, if not for you, if I saw this kind of reversal, I would be discouraged. And I would simply want to give up. It's not worth it. Why should I care? If they don't care, why should I care? I've given them my best. They've dissed it all. Right? Wouldn't you? I'd cry in my tea. I can't get over getting over that they've done this. There's absolutely nothing about that in Nehemiah's response. He comes back, he's this hard-headed, God-fearing guy who's under authority, who understands what God has called him to. So when he comes back, all we see is action and commands. Now he's the governor and he has authority to do things others would not have had. So he's in a great spot to affect change. But there's no record of discouragement, despondency, of wasting time. And you remember all along in these lessons we've said, the work's the thing, right? We're participating in the work God's doing, and so we don't want to be distracted from the work. Well, in this case also, there's no record that Nehemiah was distracted from the work that he needed to get back to again. So he was a great example of Kipling's ultimate man. He's ready to stoop down and build again. He doesn't have to rebuild the wall, but the whole spiritual formation of the, the nation has to be rebuilt again. And that's what he does. Uh, point by point, to the points of failure here, I'm just going to walk through these briefly. Um, to Tobiah's presence at the temple, you see this in verse 8 and 9, chapter 13. <laughs> I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I gave orders, they cleansed the chambers, I brought back the vessels, the grain, the offering, the frankincense. When Nehemiah started the restoration, where did he go? He went to the temple. He started with God's house. That was appropriate. 
Guys, throughout the Bible, in Ezekiel, when God's going to judge Jerusalem, do you know where He starts? He starts at the temple. Second Peter says when God's judgment begins, it always begins at His house. It always begins in the closest sphere to God. And that's exactly what you see here. So, Nehemiah goes to the temple and he kicks Tobiah out. This would have been fun. This would make a good film, wouldn't it? So you'd see Nehemiah's back as stuff just comes chucked out of these rooms, the personal residence of Tobiah. And then he talks to the priests and the Levites and he says, guys, cleanse these rooms. We're putting them back to the service that they were intended. Tobiah's gone. To the lack of provision for the Levites, verse 11, I confronted the officials. I said, why is the house of God forsaken? Guys, this was your responsibility. So I confronted. I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Verse 12, Judah brought the tithe in. Verse 13, I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest and etc. Basically, I, I confronted the guys that had failed. I said, get back up and do your job. Judah brought in the tithes, and then I set up people who would be faithful to take care of that, unlike the former priest. I confronted, I gathered, I appointed. To the violation of the Sabbath, verse 15, I warned them, I confronted the nobles, I commanded that the doors be shut, I gave orders that they wouldn't be opened, I stationed my own servants at the gates. He was going to forbid the merchants from coming and going and simply plying their trades on the Sabbath like any other day. And again, he set his own men at the gates. He made sure that he was putting faithful men because he knows the guys that were here, I can't count on them. So I've got to have new people overseeing this work. To the marriage with non-Jews producing children. By the way, if you read commentaries again, some people criticize Nehemiah over this passage. Uh, I'm not one of them. I confronted them. I cursed them. You know, when we think of cursing today, we're cussing. That's not the thought here. I bless or I curse in the Old Testament in God's name. I call down God's blessing on people or I call down God's judgment on people. That's what Nehemiah was doing. He wasn't cussing a blue streak. He was calling on God's judgment for those who had broken faith. It says, he beat some of them. He pulled out their hair. When we go to application, these are not in there. These, these are not on our list of what this looks like, right? Different time, different standards, different level of authority. This was radical. He was extreme, right? But it wasn't for himself. You understand I'm God's man, fulfilling God's will. He says, I made them take an oath in God's name saying you won't basically marry non-Jews. He got radical. You remember, what, what happens to a covenant nation that intermarries with pagans? And God had warned them about this repeatedly in the law. He said, they'll take your hearts away. You'll just die. You'll die individually and you'll die. Covenant people, you won't exist. Because the knowledge of Yahweh will simply be watered down and gone. That's why this was so important. And to the grandson of the high priest who had married wicked Sanballat's daughter, verse 28, he says, I ran him out of town. I tarred and feathered him. I ran him out of town. I chased him from me. So Nehemiah's response, here's the work. What's the work? It's the restoration of the city. That had all been accomplished, but now he's come back. There's reversals. What do I do? God's work now, what does it require of me? One, Nehemiah didn't faint or give up. Again, nothing's recorded of that kind of response here. 
He had the authority as governor to act, and he had zeal for God's glory that infused that authority. And then everything was about action and command. Action and command. That's what was needed. That's what he did. He restored the work of God. The tower he had built, the wall, not the physical wall, but the spiritual wall he had built had been torn down in his absence, and he stooped again, just like Kipling's poem, he stooped down to rebuild again. You've got to love this guy. He's just spot on in everything he's done. It, it would be appropriate to mention, Nehemiah is especially related to the people that had married with the pagans. It sounds so radical and so extreme, and we recognize that and that these are different times. And so when we go to points of application, it doesn't look like that for us, right? In fact, this is one of the more difficult lessons in Nehemiah to say, what does that look like in your life and mine? How do I apply that in my spheres of influence? Nehemiah overcame Jerusalem's spiritual reversal with bold reproof and action, and that will look a little different in your life and mine. It's not to say bold reproof and action aren't required, but it probably won't look the same way that his did in this setting. So to application, thinking about what are our Jerusalems, we're shifting gears. The thing we want to take away, apart from anything else, on what this looks like for us, is at least Nehemiah's attitude that in my spheres of influence, the towers I'm building, the building blocks that I'm responsible to erect as the wall or the tower, the places that God has me in the church or in the world, at work or at school, that I'm at least bringing Nehemiah's kind of dedication and zeal for God and willingness to be extreme. If that's what's needed. That's not always needed. But in the face of spiritual reversal in my spheres of influence, in the gifts and the callings God has on my life, what does that look like for me? How do I take Nehemiah's example and apply that into my life? How do you do that in yours? So, we know, and we've said this, some of this is repetition this morning, God's not building the city, literally, of Jerusalem today. He's building the church. And so your works and mine, they take place under the umbrella, as it were, of Jesus building the church. That's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's all kinds of things. But whatever our work is, it's part of God's work in the world, which is building the church of Jesus Christ. That's God's work in the world today. I had discussions with some of you recently. My bottom line on all kinds of ministries is, you know there are no parachurch organizations in heaven? Did you know there's no mission boards in heaven? They don't exist. You know the only thing in heaven along this line? It's the church. The church is what Jesus is building. And all your labors and mine, they're part of Jesus building His church. The sphere of influence God gives us, the gifts He gives us, the calls He puts on us to work, they're to build His church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build My church. That's what He's doing today. That's what you and I are part of. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul was going to uh, come to his protege Timothy in the city of Ephesus and he said, I, I hope to come and see you soon, but in case I'm withheld uh, or held up, he says, I write to tell you how to conduct yourself in the house of God, not a temple in Jerusalem, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's the church. That's what God's doing today. So everything that we're talking about here on application this morning, it's part of Jesus' work of building the church. That's what we're part of. 
So what kind of state, I've got, uh, I'm going to be as quick as I can here. I'm closing down. Guys, what kind of state is our Jerusalem starting with the church in today? Guys, I feel very blessed in Lion and Lamb Church. I really feel like God's at work. And I'm thrilled to be a part of it. And I have no naysaying here. I think God's called us together and we're tr- we try to be serious about evangelism and discipleship. God's Word, all these things, that's, that's our aim. We fall miserably short, no doubt about it. But that's our aim, that's our goal. The things that I'm going to share here, my take on the church is broadly speaking, right? It's, it's Christianity as it's understood to be in the world, not just our little corner of Lion and Lamb in Topeka, okay? But if I look at the church, the state of the church broadly today, our Jerusalem, if you will, it is in desperate need of revival. That the church of Jesus Christ has suffered terrible reversal and we are not where God's called us to be. Speaking again largely as the church. So these are just some of my observations. Nehemiah came back and he saw all these points of disorder. Here's just a few points that I see as disorder in Jesus' church, His temple today. More and more the church today tolerates heretical teaching and heretical teachers. We are losing the truth of the Scriptures. The plain reading, the plain understanding, the plain call of the Bible. We spend, and this still goes on today, we spend lavishly on our own physical buildings while it's for lack of resources that unreached people groups around the world remain unreached. Let me qualify. I'm all for church buildings. You know, people say, we don't need a church building. I say, do you have a house? They have a house. Wow. You know what a church building is? It's a house for the church. This is not to say churches shouldn't build buildings. We hope to build a a bigger building. It's not about that. What's our attitude about the buildings we build and occupy? Because I'm afraid that many of our mega churches, the the megapolises, these sprawling buildings, they're cities within cities, some of these places. And our cathedrals, I'm afraid they've become a bit like the tombs Jesus said were true of the Pharisees and the religious people and religion in Jerusalem in His day. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You appear lovely on the outside, but inside you're full of death. That's my fear here. And by the way, when you think of Nehemiah and that really extreme action, his response, pulling out hair, whooping on guys, pushing people out, throwing stuff out, does that remind you of anyone else in the Gospels? In the temple? Yeah. Sounds like Jesus cleansing the temple, doesn't it? Was Jesus extreme? He was fairly extreme. Fairly extreme. So, and that's what we're talking about. What's our attitude about these buildings? And and are we weighing how much we put in the physical structures as we are against the work isn't the building. The work is evangelism and discipleship. That's part of building God's kingdom. Guys, we, we spend ourselves prodigiously at work. Americans are great at working hard. Working long and hard. And you know, many of us work pretty hard at our hobbies too. We have all kinds of things. Entertainment we divert our attentions with, right? And you know, it's amazing though when I talk to so many Christians, they say, you know, I just don't have enough time to get up and meet with God each day in the Word and prayer. I'm like, really? I'm sorry I can't get together to pray. Really? What are you doing? What's your schedule look like? That's not God's priority. That's typical of the church. We entertain the world, we sleep around, we hook up, we marry in our leisure, and we have children as trophies. This is not what God's about. This is the church broadly, as I see it, in the world today. We resemble the church of Laodicea 
not the church God's called us to. For time's sake, let me uh, cut down a little bit briefly here too. For the revived church, I don't say this for the Laodicean lukewarm church. I don't think God has much of a role for that church. But for a revived church, one of the things we're called to is to bear witness to the truth to the world around us. It's to have a prophetic voice to the world around us. We want to be faithful in our generation to tell the culture and our sphere of influence what Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, that God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world. And He's also set up the judge. And He's validated His choice for judge because He raised Him from the dead. Friends, the church still needs to have a prophetic witness to the larger culture. We do that specifically and primarily through the proclamation of the Gospel. The Gospel is still the power of God to salvation. We should be extreme in declaring the Gospel. We don't want to sidetrack over that. The church has a place, has a role to be a prophet, a prophetic voice to the culture. Friends, this country was started by people, certainly not all Christians. The founders were not all Christians. Absolutely not. But guess what? Their world was informed by God and the Bible. They believed that a God in heaven ruled in the affairs of men. The Ten Commandments just a few decades ago were in every courthouse across this country. Thinking of spiritual reversals here. The culture we live in. The prophetic voice the church needs to have to the culture we live in. The culture has jettisoned the knowledge of God. It's illegal to put the Ten Commandments in our courts of law today. What does that tell you? You can't pray in school. And I understand the multiculturalism and everything's changed. I get all that. I'm just saying this is part of the spiritual reversal. People back in the day knew that there's a God and I'm not it. We're not God. People understood we were creatures created by our Creator in His image. We weren't at liberty to recreate God in our own image or to recreate our own image. We knew that. We knew that mere decades ago. There's a place for the church to call the world, the culture, back to repentance primarily through the Gospel to say God is in some things, some things are true. God is not in some other things, other things are not true. Uh, Parents, have you ever had this uh, occurrence? This is closer to home, right? Don't have to work. The world, okay. Let's work with there. The church, okay. But but down in our homes, have you ever been as a parent? If you have little children, you know, and Johnny or Susie, they have this challenge. You're working on them, you're working on them, you're working on them. And it looks like you're making some headway. And suddenly, they got it. You know, you go into their bedroom one morning and the spawn of hell has replaced Johnny or Susie. And you think, what? What happened? All that work. All my investment. Who is this child? Who does that child belong to? That cannot be my child. How do you respond? What do you do? See, Nehemiah's example here, it's helpful, isn't it? We don't cry over spilled milk. We don't lament that little Johnny or Susie, they didn't get it the first or the second or the ninth or the tenth time. We pick up our blocks, we pick up their blocks, and we start again. That's what we do. That's what Nehemiah did. If you're mentoring others in the church, and no doubt, if you you have a role to disciple and mentor mentor others, you're going to have disappointments, right? 
When that person is you're meeting with, when they just take a moral nosedive, how do you respond? How do I respond? What does that look like? There's so many things to nuance on application here, and I'm not getting into so many of them, so you guys be careful and prayerful about what this looks like for you. Um, but are we willing, simply as a bottom line, are we willing to have Nehemiah's kind of godly response to restart, to see the labors of our life, the fruits of our investment knocked down, knocked over, and come back and pick up and start again? That's the real call. That sometimes when we've been successful in God's call in the work He means us to be a part of in life, the work may be done for a season and we may have to get right back in the same thing again another day. Are we willing to do that with Nehemiah's kind of focus and godly attitude? That's really where this lands on point of application. Sorry, I've run a little long. Lord, we love You and want to love You better. We appreciate Your servant Nehemiah and the example he is. Lord, we think of Jesus' extremism in Your name and for Your honor in the temple. Lord, it's not that we aim for extremism, but would You give us hearts that both know You and that are radically committed to Your glory and to obedience in Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.